Greetings and welcome to the Business of Agriculture podcast with me, your host, Damian Mason. As you know, we get together here every week and discuss issues impacting the business of food, fuel, fiber, and farming. That's right. It's the Business of Agriculture, and I'm so glad you are joining me because we got a hot topic for you today, a topic that you may actually disagree with, but I want you to hear me out, and I have a special guest I want you to hear her out. Her name is Catherine Lotspich. She is a friend of the show. She's been on here before. She has her own podcast called Millennial Ag. She's a young professional woman in the business of agriculture with a dairy background. And that's why I'm bringing in Catherine. Catherine, welcome to the show. Thanks, Damien. It's great to be back. Now I better introduce the topic, the topic that I've already told our listeners that they may disagree slightly with. I'm going to tell you why Walmart did not bankrupt Borden's Dairy. I'm going to tell you why Walmart is not responsible for Dean Foods bankruptcy that was filed in November of 2019. I'm going to tell you that what we really have going on here is a great case study of commodity mindset meets the modern marketplace. Catherine, am I right? Did Walmart bankrupt Borden's Dairy? Well, Damien, I know that you like disagreement and contention on your podcast, but in this case, you are right, and I agree. Walmart did not bankrupt Borden's Dairy. Okay, so uh, to bring our listeners up to speed, maybe they saw this, maybe they didn't. This uh, happened, it was uh, just recently, it was actually on January 6th, uh, first full week of uh, the new year, if you will, the first Monday. Press release goes out, article everywhere, I'm checking out the Wall Street Journal. 163-year-old milk producer, which is always wrong. They call them milk producers. You know, cows are milk producers. Dairy men and women are milk producers. Borden's is a dairy processor. Processor. There you go. Thank you, Catherine. 163-year-old milk processor becomes second major industry player in two months to seek protection from creditors. Dean Foods being the first. It used to be called Dean Suiza. Dean's, uh, in fact, owns a plant in my hometown, Huntington, Indiana. They bought the place where my family used to sell our milk, which was an independent uh, dairy processor. So you got Dean's goes down in November. You got January, Borden Dairy files bankruptcy. And then it didn't take but maybe about eight minutes. I go on social media and I see all the agricultural people saying, another casualty of Walmart, Walmart putting Borden's out of business. And of course, I started to shake a little bit because I know the reality of the marketplace. Catherine, help me out here. What's the problem with Borden's? Why did they go bankrupt? And then I'll tell you what I think. The problem with Borden's, in my opinion, is an outdated business model. They, they relied way too much on trying to sell fluid milk, which is, um, has been declining since the 1940s, I believe. Consumption has been declining since the 1940s. Um, in, 1946, in, in 1946, basically right after World War II ended, the United States of America bumped up its milk production, or we always did have it bumped up, but uh, when you came back from World War II and you were a, a kid you know, of the baby boom, your family would drink 47 gallons of milk per person per year. In the 1940s, after World War II, 47 gallons of milk per person per year. This year, it looks like it's going to be about 16 gallons of milk per person per year, fluid milk consumption. Continue. Yeah, so fluid milk, while it's... I mean, still being consumed is not not nearly as much as it used to be, as you just illustrated. The other problem is that they're trying to sell this this beverage um, in plastic containers that let in light, that are ugly, that aren't sexy, that don't speak to millennial moms, and nobody wants to buy. And also, I mean, they come in gallon jugs, which is good if you're a large family of you know five or six kids but also the birth rate is dropping people don't have that many kids anymore they don't want that much milk to stay around to spoil 
Yeah, so you get the packaging issue. And by the way, um, uh, this is the one thing that you and I both said, outdated business model. Okay, what we're saying is we're not saying there's anything wrong that they're doing. Obviously, the milk is safe. The milk is well cared for in terms of the facility. But they still throw it into a gallon jug because that's what's easy for us. And one symptom of commodity mentality, I'll give you a great example going to the beef industry. Uh, it was about six or ten years ago. I'm touring the feed yards in Nebraska. I'm talking to some large-scale beef producers. And I talked about these carcass weights. I said, you know, these steers are immense. You know, that's a 1,450-pound steer. I said, yeah, we're sending the carcass we're sending to market a little bit bigger. But, you know, that's going to change. I said, you mean it's going to change because the consumer doesn't want a steak that is the size of a platter? It's going to change because, uh, uh, you know, say a man and woman sit down to dinner and they don't want to have to cut their steak in half because it's normal serving. They said, no, none of those reasons. Just because it's better for us, it's more efficient if we just take them this way. And I thought, hmm, so you're going to do what's really easiest for you and then pose that onto the customer. Then you're going to wonder why beef consumption is declining. So we in dairy are just as guilty, as you said, Catherine. Do you and your husband with no children need a gallon of milk per week? Um, we do, but only because our cats drink a lot of milk. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now I do. My wife drinks almost no milk, not because she's against it. She just doesn't drink much milk. She eats cheese. She's completely fine with dairy products, but she just does not drink much fluid milk. I buy a gallon for me because I'm still a dairy farm kid. I throw my spoon and a half of uh, Nestle Quick and a scoop of ice cream in it every morning into my whole milk, making my whole milk even richer with that scoop of ice cream. And I, I, I step it right down. Now, I travel half the week. I don't get through my gallon of milk either. So package size is part of it. But the consumer right now does have a choice, Catherine. They're saying, you know, our listeners saying, well, that's ridiculous, Damien. Come on, Catherine. You can buy a half gallon of milk. Yeah, you can. And, yeah. and uh, if you notice, um, the, the value-added people, let's talk, let's talk about the, the Organic Valley. Uh, isn't that the name of the brand? Mm -hmm. uh, they put their stuff almost exclusively in half-gallon paper. And tell me about that. Well, that was that was something that I wanted to talk about with you too. Okay, so half gallon, it's it's um it's a smaller portion size, so you have less of it going bad if if it does indeed go bad. Um, it looks special, you know. Packaging on on a paper carton can be much more exciting and enticing as far as colors and marketing goes. And finally, um, it it looks different and. And there's an interesting thing about um, about organic milk in that I believe the vast, vast majority of it, like 95% of it, is ultra-pasteurized, meaning that it's treated, it's, it's pasteurized at an ultra-high temperature that gives it a longer shelf life. And so it, it also lasts longer um, because of that because of that other kind of, because of that different kind of processing than what regular and conventional milk gets. I don't, want our, I don't want our listener to think that we went crazy here and that we are blaming Borden's problems on packaging size. I think that it's not Catherine's point, nor is it my point. What she essentially was saying was forever and ever, the fluid milk industry had a commodity mindset. And this goes back to, it was how much can we squeeze out of Bessie? You know, when I was a kid, 50 pounds of milk per cow per day was putting you right there at the top of the heap. That's what Dairy Herd Improvement Association said, man, if you get to that, you're going to be profitable. And uh, now the guy that I sell my, or rent my land to that's a large scale dairy farmer is about 85, 84 pounds of milk per cow per day. So we've got the production thing down as Catherine and I both know. 
production is not our problem. But then it became, what do we do with it? Well, we take it to this plant, we, we pasteurize it, we yank the fat out of it to put it into cheese and butter and cottage cheese and ice cream. And then we throw skim and 2% into this gallon jug and, and tell the customer that they should buy it. Not much has changed about that thing. in 50 years. Not much has changed about that in 50 years. And the other thing about that is, okay, we yank the fat out and put it into, um, you know, cheese, yogurt, ice cream, like you were saying. But then we're telling customers, consumers, that they really want to drink this fluid milk that doesn't taste any good because there's no fat in it. And that just, that drives me absolutely bonkers. I mean, it it took me three or four years after leaving home, after I graduated from high school, to even start liking store-bought milk because I grew up on the stuff straight out of the tank at home. And I'm not advocating for drinking raw milk by any stretch of the imagination. I wouldn't drink anybody else's raw milk, but it just tasted better. And it goes, it goes to these fluid milk plants and they take all the fat out of it because of, you know, nutritional guidelines and whatever the fad du jour is to get you skinny today. And it just doesn't taste good. And yet here we are still saying, drink fluid milk, drink fluid milk, drink fluid milk in this ugly packaging, in this inconvenient size that doesn't taste very good. And then blame it on consumers in Walmart when we have declining fluid milk sales. I mean, really? Uh, it's we my understanding. Looking- it's been a year since I read the article, but the last article I read, the only category within fluid milk that was growing was on the whole milk side. 2% skim, 1%, all that stuff was declining. The only growth category in your basic commodity milk was in the whole milk uh, uh, packaging. Okay. Borden's didn't go bankrupt because of Walmart. I want to get back to that part of it. Um, Borden's, you said, has an outdated business model. And then we went down the road of packaging. Let's talk about what else they're doing wrong. I say that they did rely very much on fluid milk, which we know is a declining thing. Now, someone's going to say, but didn't they also have cheese, et cetera? Yeah, but if they're similar to Dean's, and I know the article on Dean's, two-thirds of all the sales, or more than two-thirds of all sales over at Dean's was... uh, fluid milk. And there's almost no margin on that. So, I mean, they're, they're absolutely getting skinnied down to where they're making, you know, 10 cents a gallon or some godly low margin like that. So of course they got squeezed. Um, there's another thing about Borden's that somebody is going to probably point out. There was a time when that was a branded product. You know, you yeah. said, Catherine, they've got an outdated business model. And then we're over here talking about value added, like organic Valley with the picture of a woman hugging an Ayrshire cow out in a meadow, which is, which is the image on a half gallon of organic Valley. There's a, there's a, uh, uh, woman hugging a Ayrshire cow in a meadow. It's, it, I, I, I can see it. I pulled up on the phone right now. I'm just wondering uh, where they found the Ayrshire cow. <laughs> yeah, dear, dear listener, an Ayrshire is one of the six traditional breeds of dairy cows. And to find one, you almost need to go to some sort of a livestock exhibition because you won't find one on any dairies in <laughs> the United <laughs> States without really, really looking for them. Okay. Um, the, uh, the thing about this is, is that, um, they were a branded product. There was a time when Borden's was not like the Walmart milk or Kroger milk or Winn-Dixie milk because it had Elsie the cow, a little Jersey cow with uh, some flowers around her neck. Everybody's seen the image. It's a cartoon. It's actually, it's, it goes against what I always recommend for agriculture. We've uh, uh, anthropomorphized this, this cow and made it almost human-like and stuck it on the Borden's label. So they were a branded product for a long time. The problem, I think, is not branded enough. Putting Elsie on the gallon jug of commodity-grade 2% milk still just looks like 2% milk to the consumer in the year 2020. Am I right? Right. That's putting slapping Elsie on the plastic gallon jug isn't going to fix Borden's problems. But 
maybe a little bit of rebranding and putting LC on a half gallon carton might do something for them. Um, maybe not enough to fix all of their problems, but you know, something more along those lines, like you say, or somebody help hugging the real Elsie because they, they did have um, a series of real Elsies who would go around to, to exhibitions and fairs and those sorts of things. And even when, um, when, when I attended a DFA annual meeting, when I was in high school, I got to meet Elsie. That's great. And by the way, you didn't need to meet Elsie. You're a dairy farm kid. I'm a dairy farm kid. I don't need to meet Elsie. You know who needs to meet Elsie? Our consumers. And that's the other thing that we do wrong. We, I always pointed out, if agriculture was a human, we'd be the crazy guy in the park talking to himself on the bench. We mutter to ourselves. We talk to ourselves. We don't talk to our consumers enough. I don't we need to meet Elsie. We even market to ourselves. All of the, all of the you know, the the new, I mean, you think of the undeniably dairy campaign. Do any of our listeners who aren't from agriculture, do you have any idea what that campaign is? Undeniably dairy. Nope. Probably not. All of that stuff. I mean, there's all kinds of swag and it's all given to dairy farmers. We're not the ones who need it. Yeah. I have a Dairy Farmers of America ice cream ladle and mm -hmm. I was going to probably eat ice cream regardless and I didn't need that. Um, but uh, you're right. A consumer does. Okay. Back to the outdated business model. Um, and you know what? You can say, Damien, you're not a CEO. Hey, Catherine, you're not like the CFO of these companies. Well, what are you talking about? Borden's was a good company. Borden's stuck around for 163 years. Here's the thing. And one of my big topics when I talk to business crowds is about reinvention. They were pretty on their game a hundred years ago still. Uh, I've got the image here out of the Wall Street Journal, glass-lined milk tank. They've got people running around in their white, uh, which always is interesting, dairy wearing white. It's always been a neat thing to me. But they look like a value-added product. This picture in 1920s, 100 years ago, they look like a value-added product. They look like something that I can understand a consumer paying a premium for. You know, they're, they're pushing quality. You know, they're, they're at a time when maybe the milk wasn't still as good because it's coming off of these far-flung dairies. We didn't have great transportation 100 years ago, didn't have great infrastructure. The thing is, today, those aren't upsells. Those are expectations. Glass-lined milk tanks or, uh, you know, refrigeration, safety, those are all things that we already expect. Those are expectations now. They didn't take it to the next level. That's what I think happened with these companies that become commodity mindset. Your thought? I agree. I was thinking back towards towards when they first started out. They also offered home delivery, and you know that's now that is a value added um, component. Again, there's there's two or three uh, companies in Colorado who have home delivery along their front range, and people love it. I've looked at their reviews. I've looked at websites and their social media pages and people think that this is just the absolute um, cream of the crop, forgive my pun, but getting milk delivered is is a luxurious, um, you know, type of thing to have nowadays. Back in the day, it was just what you did. And, you know, I think as you say, reinvention and not becoming complacent and not getting comfortable with, with um, you know, where their cheese is for using a business term from who moved my cheese, that book. Um, could have could have helped save them from some of this struggle. Um, becoming complacent, I think, is a huge, huge problem in in the dairy industry and in agriculture as a whole. It's a very dangerous thing to do. Yeah. So here's the thing. Let's let's kind of really break this out. Right now, uh, 100 years ago, delivery to your door was almost a dairy staple. Now I don't know because I wouldn't alive 100 years ago if everybody got it, but I know a lot of people did. And the, you know, for instance, growing up, I would talk about the milkman. 
and still in the 1970s, people would say, milkman, well, you don't get milk delivered to your place. I'm like, no, it's different. And you're a dairy farm kid. The milkman comes and takes your milk uh, to the processor uh, in a bulk tank truck. So the, um, the thing that now is that is a value added thing, you know, with the grub hubs and, uh, and the food streets, you know, whatever these, all these different companies will bring food to your door, food uh, delivery, but also dairy delivery would be back to going back towards, but also a value added proposition. Deans and Bordens both became commodity producers. And this again, as you said, is what we do in, in agriculture period. We just, we really, we love to go this direction. It becomes how much can I produce? How cheap can I produce it? We're going to be bigger. We're going to be cheaper. That there is obviously uh, nothing wrong with that. If you can be the king of the hill on cheapness and command the marketplace and then just say, we're just going to be always the biggest and the cheapest. But eventually you run out of margin because somebody's going to try and be cheaper. And that's where Borden's and Dean's were big commodity producers and you know if you, you you can't have it both ways you can't say well we don't have enough profit margin well all you did was lower it yourself you lowered it yourself walmart didn't do this to you now let's get back to that since that's the title of this podcast walmart didn't bankrupt Borden's. i kept seeing it on social media people that haven't maybe taken as many agricultural economics classes as me said walmart's doing this tell me why walmart did not bankrupt Borden's." Well, number one, Walmart has one processing plant, one processing plant in Indiana that serves a few surrounding states for their stores. The other thing is that you told me just this morning before we got started was that Walmart is processing about 2 million pounds a day of milk, 2 million pounds a day. Now to the average consumer, that may sound like a lot, but it sounds like a lot of milk to the person that doesn't get through a gallon. Uh, Incidentally, dear listener, if you're not a dairy person, milk is sold by the 100 weight. It is sold by pounds, not by gallons, but in rough terms, about 8.2 to eight and a half gallon uh, pounds per gallon. Am I right? Yep. That's right. So, Anyway, Walmart, this Walmart processing facility, the only one that Walmart owns, is, is processing about 2 million pounds of milk a day. And again, pardon the pun, that is a drop in the bucket for, for what is processed daily in the United States for fluid milk. Yeah, there so the idea that Walmart opened up their own processing plant, because I've seen it referenced in the Wall Street Journal, and I'm thinking, this, is, this plot processing plant is right by me. It's 25 miles from my farm. It's right by the Fort Wayne Airport where I fly out of, and it just is not of the capacity that these people think it is. To hear what the, the media is producing and printing and, and putting on social media, et cetera, you would think that they opened up a facility that is like the – uh, you know, the biggest, uh, it's like, it's like the size of Manhattan or something. It's like, no, this is not the case. It's just, it's, it's just a little dairy processing facility. It, it best would handle about a dozen to 15 dairy farms of the size that I rent my land to. My guy rents about 2000 cows. So call it enough to process 12 or 15 of my farmer's milk. Now that sounds like a lot, but again, in a country of 330 million people, it's a spit in the bucket. Right. And I think another part of this that's important to understand is that um, the Walmart plant, from my understanding, was it was first um, introduced in 2013. They didn't start building in two, until 2016, and they started processing in 2017 and getting up to full processing capacity in 2018. So, I mean, something that took that long that people like Deans and Borden saw coming down the pipeline for six or seven years um, 
cannot be blamed on on bankrupting these two very very much larger dairy companies that have also been around for a long long time it kind of almost points to a complacency or a uh idea that we just won't change like you said we're too big to fail we didn't drop we didn't drop uh we didn't drop um 10 million gallons of milk per day out of the sky from Mars on these companies uh, for 14 cents a gallon. It's like, holy shit, what do we do now? No, this this has been the reality for a long time. Too much milk, declining consumption. Those have been realities since I was a kid, since mm-hmm. before I was a kid. We had too much milk in the 1980s when the government paid us for the dairy buyout program in the 1980s. Didn't pay us, but paid my neighbors to go out of business. Uh, we've had this for 40 some years. We've had too much milk and we've had declining consumption. So that's not new to these two companies. Walmart is not new to these two companies. They became the number one grocer about 15 years ago. Remember, they were never a grocer in the 1980s and 90s. They said, we're getting the grocery business. Like that, they decided we're gonna really plow into this and they became the number one grocery selling, uh, number one grocery seller, grocery store in the United States. None of that is new. And then somebody's going to say, Catherine, yeah, but Walmart, they process their own milk, and then they also sell that milk cheap. Answer that. Yes, they sell that milk cheap because milk in most grocery stores around America, grocery chains, is what's known as a loss leader. It, it goes cheap. It's 99 cents a gallon, a buck 99 a gallon. Because why? Because that gets consumers into the grocery store. Now, where do they keep milk? Milk is kept at the very, very back of the grocery store, right? So grocery marketers are hoping that they hoping that the mom or, or teenage kid or whoever got sent in for milk has to walk through all of those other higher priced items, higher margin items to get their 99 cent milk. Guess what? If you're going to the store for just milk, you're probably not coming out with just milk. It's a loss leader. It always has been. And one other thing is that that price that's sold in the grocery store does not reflect what dairy farmers get paid. Is not reflective at all of how dairy farmers get paid. That has nothing to do with the milk price formulation. There is a little bit, yes, by the way, most of our listeners probably completely understand this. Some do not. I saw some commentary on my post about this a week ago on social media. Uh, well, damn Walmart selling this stuff for nothing. Who can I make a living? I'm like, you need to understand, look up the word lost leader. Chicken, uh, chicken thighs or something like that is usually, often used as a lost leader. There's like five also items. Uses rotisserie chickens. Yeah. By the way, what a fantastic deal. If you say, I'm running home from the airport. I've been working hard. Lori's, uh, you know, been working. We don't have time to cook. Man, you can grab you a rotisserie chicken and maybe like a bag of lettuce. <laughs> you can have a side salad. You can have a side salad and a chicken and for like five ninety nine. You couldn't, you couldn't raise a chicken for it. You can buy a rotisserie chicken cooked and bagged at the Kroger's for. Right. So milk is used as a loss leader. And so the only thing that there, I read a long time ago, I learned this in an economics class, that uh, economics of food, um, the more a certain product is used as a loss leader, eventually it looks in the marketplace like it has a deteriorating value. You know, milk then does suffer from this idea that if you ever said, I want to get $5 for this gallon of milk, there's going to be resistance because and reluctance because the consumer has forever seen that it's used as a loss leader for say $1.99 or whatever that number should be. And by the way, don't argue with me about the numbers. We know that there's fluctuation in this. Now to counter that 
statement because I learned that 30 years ago in an ag econ class that you've got your, you know, your whatever it is, your pork chops or your, your chicken pieces or your eggs, which are commonly used as a loss leader. Here's the reality though. The organic valleys and the glass container uh, local producers like we have here in Arizona, uh, in Indiana, it's Oberweiss. They have totally proven that to be wrong by changing their packaging and selling it as organic or delivering it to the door. They have completely shattered that whole premise, that whole belief that once you've used something as a loss leader, you'll never be able to charge more for it because they're out there at $3.99 for a half gallon. So something's wrong. I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because that was exactly what was on my mind. Um, there are companies out there that are reformulating, rebranding, reinventing uh, fluid milk. And it's, it's like I mentioned before, it looks different. It looks special. It looks sexy. It might have promises on it. Um, like, like Fairlife does on their half gallon of milk that they sell for four forty nine. It's got 50% more protein and 50% less sugar. So there is re there fluid milk is capable of reinvention. It's the companies who, who process it, who have to have that kind of a mindset. And I would say that companies that are as large and corporate like Dean's and Borden's, um, maybe have lost that sort of, that spirit of, of invention and spirit of, of, uh, of differentiation really is what you're talking yeah. about. And, and also, frankly, Catherine, it's trying, it's trying new ventures. No, uh, people get mad at me, but I'll point this out. we got the milk marketing board. Um, and this is not on the processing side, but it's kind of all related. Generally, the people that are on the milk marketing board are old retired dairy farmers that uh, sold their farm to their son and daughter, and then they want something to do. And this way, uh, Ed and Martha can go to Washington, D.C. once a quarter and get paid to go there. And maybe they can go to Chicago once for an annual meeting. And then when they come out and say, hey, we got this brand new marketing idea, you know what we're going to do? We're going to call it Undeniably Dairy. Well, sounds good to me. Now you got Ed and Martha that were dairy farmers in uh, Wisconsin and uh, or New York or California or wherever they happen to be from. And they're good people and they're hardworking people. You know what they aren't? They're not marketers. They've never sold <laughs> a new idea or a creative new venture in their entire life. And so then when the milk marketing board says, you know what we're going to do? We're going to have this. Uh, it's been working for 23 years. Let's go ahead and go with Got Milk. Yep, sounds good to me, because why would you change? I've never sold anything. I'm not creative. Now, people get mad at me and say that I'm picking on Ed and Martha, the retired dairy farmers. No, I'm illustrating what happens when you have 65-year-old, non-marketing-minded, non-innovative-minded, non-entrepreneurial-minded people in charge of your outreach to the consumer. They generally don't understand the consumer. They don't live half the year in the suburbs of Phoenix like I do. They don't travel uh, extensively like I do and go to grocery stores to see what the consumer is doing, seeing, and more importantly, feeling. Your thoughts? Couldn't agree more once again. And I think... I think too that that tends to be a demographic that says, oh, we just need to educate the consumer. The consumer needs to be educated more. And that is, number one, that's a dangerous mindset to have. Number two, how flat out insulting is that? If someone came to you and to your business or to whatever you were buying and said, oh, Damien, you just need to be educated about, you know, buying this product that I want you to buy because I don't have the, the creativity to innovate what I'm doing. I mean, that is just flat out outrageous and and really really condescending and i can't you know you can't blame consumers for 
for um, maybe feeling the way that they do towards. All right, let's like just, just kind of think about it this way. Let's just look at it another way. Let's say you're a handy person and forever you used a pair of pliers and pliers are a good tool. And then you found a vice grip. And it's like, good God, these things work better because they grip things really, really well. And you know what? I, I, I imagine if the plier manufacturer said, but by God, we're good at making pliers. We're just going to educate you on why you need to use pliers. And you say, yeah, but these vice grips work better. Yeah, but pliers work good and they're cheaper. I'm like, well, I don't give a shit. The vice grip works better. That's almost what we're up against. We've got people that are like saying, well, just go and educate them on why they need to drink milk out of a plastic jug because that's what we know how to make. Okay. Next thought on this very topic, Ms. Catherine Lotzbitch, and if you're just joining, I don't know why you are, because it's a podcast. It's not like a radio station where you jumped in here. If you happen to forget who I'm talking to, I'm talking to the dairy goddess that she is, Catherine Lotzbitch, <laughs> from a large dairy operation in Utah. She's an agricultural professional herself in Colorado, and she is my guest, friend of the show, as it were. And she's also the host of Millennial Ag, her own podcast that she hosts with a gal named Val. Check it out. Catherine, NPR about uh, a month ago did a sob story about these poor people that are dairy farmers up in Wisconsin. And it plays to what you and I are talking about. We like to pull this thing of, uh, we didn't do anything wrong. Borden's didn't do anything wrong. But what if it was any other industry? What if it, what if it was uh, me saying, you know what? I, uh, I'm gonna open up a new business and I'm gonna sell some books. And I'm going to do it out of a little shopping cart uh, on a corner in Seattle. You're like, okay, well, what do you do when it rains? Oh, it rains every day. So I don't know. That's going to be a problem. Yeah, I won't be able to work then. Um, what about the fact that you don't have all the latest book offer? You, you can't get, uh, you know, Stephen King. And Well, I don't, I don't know. And all of a sudden, I don't make it as a business. And then is the media going to say this poor, poor man, he, he had a nice little business of selling books out of a shopping cart on a corner in Seattle. Well, it wasn't really that nice of a business because it really had struggles. And, and it turns out Amazon put him out of business. We have this thing where in agriculture, we're told by media that does not understand the industry of food production when they profile this 81-year-old woman in Wisconsin who has just started a uh, a GoFundMe account that her daughter-in-law helped her set up and that large corporate industrial agriculture is putting her out of business. Her husband, who is 85 years old, milk 50 cows. They're not differentiated in any way. They're not organic. They're not uh, grass-fed. They're not bottling them themselves. They're not doing unpasteurized or anything like this or unhomogenized. They're not doing any specialty at all. And NPR sold the story and, and told and sold the story that uh, this is what's happening right now because of the Walmarts and the industrialization of food production. Your thoughts? I really, really struggle with stories like that because it does tell a sob story. And I'm not, not, not belittling what that family is going through or or, you know, the heartache that, that they're surely experiencing right now, because if they're, they're that old and they're still dairying, they've been doing it their entire lives. And it's probably, you know, a family tradition way back, but they failed to recognize where they could reinvent, where they could do something different in order for them to sustain their business. Um, I know I use this a lot when I'm, when I'm a friend, when I'm on your show, Damien, but I got to go back to my parents. My parents started out with 70 cows in Connecticut, just an hour outside of New York City. And they made it through the hellacious 80s and got to the early 90s and realized as they were watching dairy farms around them topple because 
people from New York were coming out to buy the beautiful rural land for their weekend homes, mm -hmm. that if they wanted to stay in business, if they wanted to have a business for their children to come back to, they were going to have to do something different. So their different was move to Utah and expand. 20 years later, we were doing just fine on the co-op model, if you could call it just fine with the ups and downs in the volatile milk market. And we saw, my, my parents saw another opportunity to do different, which was to go, instead of shipping our milk to a co-op, direct ship to a yogurt company. And now we have a sustainable business that makes more money than we have ever dreamed of, supports more than 80 families in terms of our employees, supports my brother and his family and my other brother and his family, as well as my parents. And we'll see them well into retirement and see this as a sustainable business. If my parents hadn't had the forethought to change back in the early 90s, I wouldn't come from a family of dairy farmers. Right. I would not be looking at a legacy moving forward. Well, of course, Catherine, that's a nice defense of your industrial factory farm that you have <laughs> there. Okay, you know, and, and everybody else thinks think that we're being uh, harsh. You know, my family doesn't dairy anymore, and it's not because I couldn't still figure out a way to put milkers on cows. Uh, a, I didn't want to do it. B, I didn't, wasn't capitalized enough. C, I saw the writing on the wall. D, my brother was doing it. There was only enough room for one of us. I can go on and on and on about this. This doesn't mean the marketplace is evil. It doesn't mean any of that. It just means that there is an evolution. I started out 25 years ago as a Bill Clinton impersonator. What if I, in the year 2020, didn't have an act, I had an act and nobody was buying it. Would NPR come into a sob story and say, poor Damien, and they always talk in these very subdued tones with that music that is somewhat between a wedding walkout march and a march into a funeral. I'm from NPR reporting. And what if NBR did a story about poor Damian Mason, who for 25 years has struggled as a Bill Clinton impersonator, and yet the marketplace will not have him because large-scale factory farms, I'm sorry, large-scale industrial comedy is putting him out of business. Comedy Central and Netflix have ruined this man's life. I'm from NPR reporting. It's like bullshit. You know what? I had an act at a place in time, right? Right. That's absolutely right. And I love, love, love that depiction of it because, you know, if you were out there starting a GoFundMe for your Bill Clinton act, I mean, you would be laughed right off of social media and right out of whatever it is you're doing for a living because Bill Clinton was relevant 20 years ago. Sure. And you're going to say, well, my God, uh, I mean, what's this guy not understand? But in agriculture, an 81-year-old woman, and your heart goes out to her because I'm sure she's a nice old grandmother, but also this is a business. Her and her husband are saying, oh, yeah, we've got a couple hundred acres and milking 51 cows and oh, we can't make, the, can't make our payments. And NPR does their story, their sappy story about how tragic this is because the NPR reporter has never milked a cow, has never been on a farm, has never produced one calorie of food, has probably never taken in one class in economics. Okay, the reality, Walmart did not bankrupt Borden's. Where does this go? Um, since we want to make sure we give sort of a resolution, in your opinion, I've got my opinion, where does this whole thing go? In dairy and then also, where does it go to the rest of agriculture? Because Catherine, we don't see this just in milk, we see it in other places. Right. And gosh, seeing where this goes is a tough one for me, Damien. I don't have the economic background that you do, but I think for a while we keep seeing companies like this topple because I mean, yeah, the writing is all over the wall. It's on the floor, it's on the ceiling, it's everywhere. But we are way too slow to change in agriculture when it comes to marketing our product. When it comes to developing or producing our product, we're not slow to change at all. Anything we can do to make more of it. 
but I think that we continue to see um, milk processors um, topple or at least declare bankruptcy and and get scooped up by by even larger companies. Um, I hope. I hope, and I know that hope is not a strategy. Um, it's funny that you said that last week. That's something that my dad uh, first wrote about in 2012, hope is not a strategy. Um, and he was referring to milk marketing as a matter of fact. Right. But hope is not a strategy to, to reinvent yourself, to sustain your business, to do any of those things that you want to do. But I hope that uh, fluid milk processors see the need for differentiation, whether that's new flavor offerings, different packaging, some sort of value added, higher protein, um, you know, less sugar, uh, you know, packaging more oriented towards kids, um, those sorts of things. I, I hope that those, those become the norm and not, not something that's announced at the first of the year and then sort of fades into black after it didn't work. Let me say that, that, that neither Catherine and I nor anybody, if you're listening to this and you're saying, well, wait a minute, you mean tell me there's no place for your basic milk? No, that's not true. Not there is. There absolutely is. It's just that we know that that's not a growth area. So it'll become, uh, you know, just think about anything. Um, uh, selling anything that still has a need or a demand, but it's not going to probably be uh, – in a growth mode, it's going to be in a decline mode. There's absolutely still going to be the consumer that wants to buy a gallon of milk at a cheap price. And what that then does is it favors, maybe Borden doesn't go away, nor Dean's goes away. And then we've got a couple of others, the Prairie Farms, the DFA uh, providers. I see a consolidation. I see what will probably end up being big three economics. There'll end up being three of these and it'll become more vertically integrated. Probably not at the farm level, although they might end up being contractually oriented, where then you're a commodity producer of milk, you tie in with Borden, which is now owned by Dairy Farmers of America or some other large uh, player already. So we're going to see a vast consolidation. There's probably going to be a few, and it's going to go from the farm to the to the milk shelf, to the retailer. And then there will be these other ones that are doing a niche thing on delivery, glass, organic valley, grass-fed, whatever those things are. That's my prediction that we'll see uh, greater consolidation of this. I think I think that that is what we're going to see. Um, I think an interesting thing about milk, and you can tell me if it extends to other other food products as well, but those ones that are differentiated, like you know the the big half gallon glass containers of chocolate milk or you know creamsicle milk or whatever. Um, the interesting thing is that those are differentiated by what they look like and probably what they taste like. Um, but there's, you know, they're being bought by consumers who would probably tell you that they're health conscious, but, <laughs> but, you know, chocolate milk and, and orange creamsicle milk aren't, aren't exactly um, what someone who would tell you that they were health conscious would buy on the regular basis. But they look pretty, they look different. It's something different in their fridge. They like the way that it tastes probably because it's full fat. So they're having success or those companies are having success in those kinds of areas. And I, I just find that an interesting uh, conundrum. In um, where I also see this, I guess here's the other direction I was going to take it where I see this going. Uh, there was a time again where something like Borden was a branded product. It had Elsie, it had a, a recognizable name and it still does, but it doesn't have a brand premium priced name, meaning you're going to pay 
30% more just because it has LCD cow on it, certainly not on milk because milk is viewed as a commodity in it, in its current packaging. I have wondered if there's this uh, day of reckoning coming because food has become so much more personalized and um, uh, differentiated. There's more SKUs available right now than there ever have been at the grocery store or for home delivery. Uh, we didn't have, we used to have a lot of independent grocers. We didn't have independent high-end specialized grocers, Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, you name them, uh, all these things. I have wondered if the Borden and the Deans are just the, uh, the canary in the coal mine. What about Kellogg's? What about Post? What about Nabisco? What about Mondelez? Go ahead. I was just thinking of Tony the Tiger when you were talking about branded products. Um, I mean, he was all over the place when I was a kid. And I just saw, you know, last week or Christmas or whatever, the, the Sun Bowl in Arizona. And Tony the Tiger was a prominent figure there. And I thought he looked very out of place. It was really not speaking to the times that they were in. Go ahead. Yeah, and so there is a reality, and I've been seeing the articles. So you know, we might this might be a subject for another podcast. But where do these old brands, these old processors of product, where do they go in a declining consumption uh, world? And it's not because they did anything wrong, but yeah. maybe they just didn't continue to grow into the new marketplace, meaning specialized food about you, uh, whatever that is, grass fed. And you know, it doesn't matter, but I'm talking about uh, Kellogg's, Nabisco, uh, Post, uh, Mondelez. I'm seeing all these craft, uh, you know, a, a lot of their business was such that it was a neat product. It had a certain amount of branding. You know, do we- read shelf today? stable. We're, say it again. <laughs> it was shelf stable, which was the thing back in the day. Yeah, because in the Catherine, when you had poorer infrastructure and and uh, poorer handling, it was a, something that could last for three months. That really mattered. Does that matter moving forward? You know, does, is there a day when we look back and say, "Do you remember Jeff Peanut Butter?" I, I don't know. I'm just saying. There's a lot of brands and big companies that are really more known as processors in commodity with a certain amount of branding. That Borden's once had that same thing. Great processor, great infrastructure, hell of a distribution model, and was differentiated enough. Elsie the cow, but not differentiated enough for the year 2020. Right, exactly. I I am no economist, and I I also don't have kids, and so I don't know what that rebranding could look like if you know if those kinds of companies decide to market to the little people. Um, which I think is probably where, you know, like it started out with mommy, mommy, look at this. There's a tiger on the cereal box. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't, I don't know where this goes from here. I don't know how they're going to, how they're going to do it. Um, I see, you know, a lot of companies, a lot of really large companies leaving their, their advocacy and lobbying groups like the, the grocery manufacturers association has seen a mass exodus of, of, um, large companies because those companies realized that 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 organization is not not doing what they need to do on on a policy level so what are these companies going to do on a marketing level be interesting to see 
will be interesting to see. Her name is Catherine Lonsbitch. The title of this <laughs> podcast was Walmart didn't put Borden's out of business, uh, bankrupt, didn't bankrupt. By the way, they're not going out of business. They're going to do a reorganization. They're still going to be Borden's for the time being. They're still going to be Dean Foods for the time being. Uh, will they be here five years from now? That depends on how things shake out and what is approved through bankruptcy court. And those are all questions we can't answer. We gave you a look at the future. We gave you a look at the reality of the business and we are telling you stuff that some folks in agriculture don't want to hear. Catherine's big mantra, you got to stop telling the consumer that it's their job to get educated. (laughs) (laughs) And and mine, of course, is you've got to reinvent. If you're a commodity producer, that means you're supposed to be able to just live by being the cheapest and the biggest. Well, apparently those margins didn't work for at least these two companies. Which one comes out of this? Uh, Probably both of them, but in a very different capacity is my prediction. Your final thoughts, Ms. Catherine Lotzbich. Damien, I think it'll just be interesting to see not only where these two companies go, but seeing as the rest of the dairy industry follows, you and I are both dairy people. Um, We both watch these things very, very closely. And so it'll be interesting over the next year, five years, to see what happens within the dairy industry. Do we consolidate to the extent of the poultry and um, pork industries, or do we completely reinvent in some other way? Do we not reinvent and do we die? (laughs) <laughs> and, and by the way, this is my last thought on this. Remember, everything eventually over time becomes commoditized to a certain degree. What if 20 years from now you tune into the Business of Agriculture podcast and we're talking about Almond Breeze filing bankruptcy because it became a commoditized product and Almond Breeze, Almond Milk just couldn't quite do it anymore. They couldn't squeeze enough milk profitably out of those almonds to make it work. You think that day's coming? Well, there is an interesting thought. There's an interesting thought. That day comes. I'd love to be here with you, Damien. All right. Till next time. Thanks, Catherine. Thanks, Damien. It's always so much fun when we get together. I love being on the podcast with you. Until next time, it's the business of agriculture.